Hi, Jim. How are you? Uh, hi, Amanda. I'm well, thank you very much. Good. You know probably that I had a birthday recently. Yes. And as well as getting a very beautiful hand-painted picture of a kite, which hangs above my desk. With my <laughs> was that I, by a very famous artist by any chance? That was by a very famous artist, one Jay Hayward. I also went on a sustainable beekeeping course that my daughters had given me as a present. And I was so inspired I thought this is the woman we have to have on the podcast. So that is the reason we've got um, Jennifer joining us on the programme today. That's fantastic. Really looking forward to hearing what she's got to say. Uh, I mean, bees are such an important creature for all sorts of reasons, aren't they? But fascinating as well. Yeah. Yeah. Bees figure quite largely, don't they, on Planet Pod? As, but we've never actually talked much about beavers. And I think you're quite, you're quite keen on beavers, aren't you? I am. I think beavers are an amazing creature. Uh, and it's so fantastic that they are being reintroduced, not without some degree of controversy, but you know, really, really important for all sorts of reasons, particularly uh, what they do in terms of helping to alleviate flooding uh, and manage our rivers in a, in a very natural way. Uh, and of course, they were indigenous species in the, you know, in the UK many, many years ago. Um, so it's great they're being reintroduced, but it's also really exciting that there have been a number of these so-called milestone reintroductions of, of uh, various species which otherwise were extinct in the UK. Uh, things like the red kite, the dormouse, the osprey, white-tailed eagle or the sea eagle. Uh, so really exciting to hear what, uh, what Derek's going to tell us about beavers. Yeah, so we better get on with it and introduce our guests. We had indeed, so let's get over. Yeah, same. Planet Pod. Essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my producer, Jim Hayward. And today we're talking bees, beavers and biodiversity. You know we love alliteration here on Planet Pod. And who better to discuss this with than our guest today? Derek Gow has been described as a one-man wrecking ball, and I am quoting there, um, among other things. But his passion and tenacity over the last 20 years or so to bring the beaver back to Britain is finally paying off. Derek, hello and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thank you very much indeed for inviting me. And Derek's in his car with loaded with beaver traps on his way somewhere. So I'm sure he's going to tell us about that. And my second guest is a beekeeper with a difference. Jennifer Moore is an environmentalist and ecologist and an educationist. And from her cottage in rural Sussex, she runs Wayward Bee, offering a different and more sustainable approach to beekeeping. And as I said in the intro, I was there. My birthday present was great. It was one of the best, along with the dungarees from Lucy Nyack. No product placement here. It was one of the best presents I'd had. So, Jennifer, welcome to Planet Pod, and it's great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and we've also got Ned, who's Jennifer's Labrador <laughs> puppy, in the background. So if you get noises off, it's either a beaver escaping from the back of Derek's car or it's Ned. So there's nothing like a bit of live podcasting. <laughs> so welcome to you both and thank you so much. Um, Derek, maybe I could start with you. You've really been on a kind of one man mission for the last few years, haven't you, to get the beaver back. And can we just maybe row back to the beginning? Why beavers? What got you so passionately involved in beavers in the first place? Why beaver? Well, I think right at the beginning, it was because um, various people told me it couldn't be done. And and I went to see various different restoration projects and, and read, you know, some PhDs that had been done in the 1950s and 1960s and said that, look, this was eminently possible, but there were issues. And the more I looked at what was happening in Europe and countries like Bavaria and in Brittany um, and, and even in Holland, where they reintroduced the beavers, you know, very early in the, the 2000s, the more it, it became apparently obvious that this was something that really should be done in Britain. And 
And what you found right at the beginning of this journey in the early 1990s was that there were a few people who knew something about them and who were sympathetic and interested. But by and large, it was the preserve of, 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 of the lunatics. I mean, there was very little... <laughs> You know, there was nothing coordinated that was going to bring this idea to the fore. There was nothing sensible and pragmatic. So uh, the beginning of it all was just looking at problems, logistical problems. Where did they come from? You know, how did we get them here? Because they were on the other side of, of Europe. We, we began bringing beavers back from, from the east, from, from places like Elno and the Missourian Lakes. So th- that's how I began. It was a functional beginning with 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 the understanding of beavers really developing as you went along and saw and spoke to to more people and and went to more parts of the world where the species either uh, had not been hunted to extinction or, or indeed was recovering or had been reintroduced because we've had beavers we had beavers for a very long time didn't we and what's lovely about your book is you take us back into some of that early history where the beaver was you know wild and native and abundant and plentiful both here in the UK and across other parts of the, the planet and obviously a massively rich source of income for people both you know in terms of fur and in meat so so we'd had beavers so it's not like this was bringing something alien into our landscape was it yeah, but this, the thing is, when you actually start to look at species restorations, you don't have to break uh, a chain of understanding for very many generations or years before you get people looking at something that maybe they can still vaguely remember. And certainly in Britain, those rememberings were only the lightest of things. I mean, you had an oral tradition in a place called Nant Francum, which is a, a bare grazed valley in Wales where, you know, you look at it now and think, well, oh, this is not beaver habitat. This is not possible. But of course, that Bear Grays Valley is a, an environment that's been entirely created by our use of the land, overgrazing and forest destruction. And then you had kind of a lingering folk memories in and around Loch Arbor. But these, these things were, these memories themselves were coming from, oh, you know, old storytellers who, who were saying in their time that these, these legends were dying. So the beavers that, that were the last of the British beavers, as far as we know, um, you know, finished in or around um, the late 1700s, early 1800s. Even though the gap in our, our living with this animal or not is only perhaps a couple of hundred years, it was long enough to break any understanding of what the, the animal was like or... or you know, sympathy, at least initially, for its restoration. Yeah, and I suppose what we've done is in that time, we've denuded the landscape so much, haven't we, in our agricultural practices and the way that we farm. And we've made our landscape really hostile to to a number of species. I mean, not not just beavers. I mean, in, in, in your case, Jennifer, your passion is bees. I know you're interested in, in all parts of, of the environment you know, and, and and the natural world. But bees are the bit that get you really going. But we've actually made our landscape really hostile to lots of creatures, haven't we? You know, bees among them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's interesting what um, Derek's saying. Um, you know, we as humans, we tend to think that we know best about landscapes and, and what's right. And actually, we've, we've sort of lost all our trust and faith, if you like, in nature to, to sort of shape our landscapes and to inform how we manage our landscapes. And it's very much kind of we're at the top. We know what's right. If you don't do this how we want it, then then you're not going to do it at all. And you know, I think that's a huge detriment to nature, which has been, you know, played out by the you know the sort of loss of loss of species diversity and the the problems we're experiencing, you know, with food production um, and and everything else that we're we're seeing. But do you feel both of you that there's a little bit of a shift going on? I mean, obviously, 
Derek, we, we're going to ask you about some of your encounters with the beavers in a minute, but you know, the time that you've been doing this and the fact that we're now at a position where beavers are back and, you know, we're a bit more in tune with the landscape. Do you feel that there's a, a little bit of a shift going on in terms of our relationship with, with the natural world, or are we still largely not interested in, into sort of like mass production and will your, your, the work that both of you doing it is just pockets rather than more widespread? Um, hmm. It's a hard thing to answer because, I mean, you could flippantly turn around and say, well, look at Extinction Rebellion, you know, look at the response to the Attenborough films, look at the the growing concern we see in so many quarters. But I wonder, I wonder beyond that whether the the vast majority of people that exist on this planet or share this island with us are are actually truly engaged. I mean, there's a very interesting set of figures that... um, Oh, I saw the other day, you know, we're by, you know, they were looking at the amount of money spent in agriculture and there's, and this is from the taxpayers, it's 3.3 billion a year in subsidies, 2.6 billion a year in the cleanup bill for all the damage it does. Um, and then uh, nature conservation, I think in totem in that year, this is Mark, Mark Crocker's figures, had spent, you know, um, something at like 1.6 billion on all its different projects, raising that money hard, um, you know, from all sorts of different sources. So it's not easy money or guaranteed money to come by. And then the cosmetics industry had spent something like 10.7. And, and that shows you that, you know, as, as the ice at the edge of the Arctic um, starts to, to, to disintegrate and the methane um, that that's under its surface is released to to set up a, an unbreakable chain of, of natural methane release, which 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 you know maybe something we're just not able to control at all because we're not as smart as we think we are. We may have an ungovernable environment um, that's now starting to to rise around us, and it worries me that that is so. And it shows us that you know when all these other things are happening, the thing we're principally concerned about as a a big pink hairy ape is the colour of our eyebrows and how long our lashes are. And you look at that and think, oh, I mean, I, I, I don't know, is, is the honest answer. I think you find very many more people who are concerned, who, are, who, are, who feel really cheaty, that they have no say in this, that there's nothing they can do about it. I think there's tremendous hope, but we're living in a time of tremendous danger as well. We ignore this and, 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 and you know, goodness only knows what the consequences are going to be. It's not going to have a happy ending. I think, I mean, I I have a slightly different, I have the kind of the opposite problem to Derek, really, but that everybody thinks that honeybees are endangered and native and kind of should be (laughs) here. And so I have spent my time explaining to people that they're not endangered. Honeybees are not an essential part of our pollination suite. And, um, you know, they they should not be prioritised over and above other species. Um, And yet everybody everybody loves them. And, um, you know, I sort of always feel quite fortunate when when the media present a bee as an actual bee, not a wasp or a hoverfly. And there's so much misrepresentation and misinformation. And um, honeybees, um, I think they have a tremendous value as an educational tool and as a kind of totem for a conservation project um, in, you know, with sort of one or maybe two. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, they're worth for them to be able to be a kind of a proxy for other pollinator species. And, you know, to my mind, I, I do, um, you know, applaud honeybees' potential for, for bringing people in and engaging the public because everybody knows them. You know, Winnie the Pooh has a lot to answer for. Um, and, um, 
I think I think they have a, a real value from that perspective. And uh, but I th- I think it is very difficult because people mistakenly think sort of oh you know bees are in trouble so I better go and get some bees and you know that's the same as saying oh you know our garden birds are struggling so I'll go and get some chickens because you know they're birds and they're in my garden it, you know and that's that's the equivalent of getting hive of honeybees so it's you know they it's like with it's like with everything unfortunately it's it's nuanced and you can't just come in and say you know bees are good full stop it's how they're done it's 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 got a lot of parallels with the meat-eating argument to be honest um and it does require skill and some some quite involved looking at looking at the project itself as to whether honeybees are actually going to be appropriate um and so i i'm actually sort of holding back a a sort of avalanche of popularity regarding bees and (laughs) which is probably the opposite opposite problem to derek so, so Jen, you're, you know, obviously you you spend some time keeping bees, but you do so much more than that, don't you? I mean, you spend a lot of time thinking about the other species and the other pollinators and bees are only one of, of the indicators. So so what else should people be thinking about when they're thinking about a balanced um, ecology and a balanced environment? The best thing I think that honeybees do is um, they, as I said, by having them as a kind of a uh, a beacon of your mission statement regarding what you're going to do for biodiversity because honeybees uh if you've got a hive it naturally um reduces the amount of disturbance in the area surrounding the hives not like a box of 50,000 venomous insects to put you off strimming so um <laughs> i think you know and that lack of disturbance and we do find that in areas where you put a hive, a single beehive, you know, the area around that, you get tremendous numbers of grasshoppers that encourages different types of spiders, um, slow worms, grass snakes. Um, and, and that, to my mind, is the, it's the sort of, it's the quiet you're obliged to keep around a beehive, which should be much more focused upon rather than, um, you know, the sort of the bees themselves. Um, and there's something very uh, heartwarming, I suppose, about seeing bees coming and going. You can see what pollen they're bringing back. You can see kind of how they're behaving, which is much more accessible than than other species of bee. Which, even though other species of bee are equally, if not more important, they're not as you know visually accessible. And you know, human beings are, are terrible doubting Thomases. And unless we can see something, um, we tend not to be particularly interested. And a beehive is a large, tangible thing, um, and it, it allows people to connect in a way that, you know, you can't necessarily with a with a soldier bee, which might only be around for a few weeks in one particular part of the year. Bees perpetuate; they can be around for a very long time, and we can we can relate to them in a way that you can't with other species. So, to my mind, that's their benefit as a proxy and as a kind of a representative or an ambassador. They're a sort of you know. Um, it's a sort of charismatic microfauna, if you like. They, they're very emblematic and can use correctly in order to promote biodiversity. That's where their value is, in my view. So they're really just an entry point to what is actually a much, exactly. much bigger the starting point. Discussion. Absolutely. They should be the starting point, not a kind of, oh, look, we've put a beehive in there. Aren't we great? We've done lots of biodiversity. Nope. But if they bring people in, um, you know, they they forage three to five kilometres from the hive. So that's especially with community projects and schools. You know, I say kind of if, if you're within a 15 minute walk of the hive, then the 
bees from this hive will be in your garden. So what you do in your garden will affect this hive. And that is a brilliant way to get people engaged, particularly mm. children. Really, really present. Derek, I guess you've got a slightly more complicated problem, haven't you? Because most of us will probably not get to see, at least at the moment, a beaver in its natural habitat. Because <laughs> I'm assuming even though we've got them back in the UK, there aren't that many of them yet. And they're quite shy and we have to be in the right place at the right time. So so I guess part of your um, your mission is to try and make people understand why beavers are so important for our habitats. I think that's coming. I mean, I think people do have a profound understanding of how, how important they are. And I mean, increasingly, you know, when you open the pages of the Times and you're not aware that there's an article in about beavers or biodiversity or links or reintroductions and you you open it and you wallow through. I mean, you see, actually, there's some crackingly well-informed pieces in there about what these animals are and how important they are. So I, I think the realisation with regard to where we need to go and where we need to be is growing. And there are many places now where you can go to see beavers as a project down in Cornwall we have some beavers on our farm here um, which okay you can't guarantee you're going to see them but in the summer months you have a good chance and and so I think it's growing but the beaver you know the thing about beavers is that beavers are they are the makers of life they are something that exists in nature to generate life and if we're truly going to to do anything with regard to making this landscape a, a better place for other creatures to live. And I don't know if you saw the, the European environment maps that were being aired at the tail end of last week. And they show you when you look across the broad swathe of Europe, the just about the worst place to be if you're any kind of living organism other than a grouse is, is Britain. Um, it's just, oh, it's no. just horrendous. I mean, it, and, and the landscape, you know, with this simplified landscape we've created full of pesticides and toxins, toxins of the sheep uh, and the cattle, you know, it's just, you know, pesticides in the crops being sprayed again and again and again. It's not something that's sustainable. It's not something we've done for very long. And it's something that has come at tremendous cost and that we're going to have to reevaluate. So, you know, I'm away to move these beaver traps today across the National Trust at Valewood. Um, they'll be taking delivery into a large enclosure of, of a beaver family fairly soon. And what we're finding is project after project, organisation after organisation, individual owning land after individual is saying, we have to do this. And slowly, slowly and reluctantly, um, the mechanism of government is beginning to respond, but still in a way that's not too fast. We're not used to doing things fast. We're a, a nation of slugs. And, and, and the problem is now that things are changing around us so quickly that if we're going to, to save species and, and restore landscapes and indeed save ourselves and save this planet, we're going to have to respond quickly and we're not good at that. Planet Pod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. So, I mean, I've had the, the pleasure of being able to read your book, um, but for those people who haven't yet bought it, and it is a great book, and you must definitely go out, go out and buy everybody. I'm going to say this because it's called Bringing Back the Beaver. I'm obviously showing it, but this is an audio podcast, so no one can see it. Um, and it is a published by Chelsea Green, so it's a good read. But you've, in that book, you talk about the reluctance and the resistance that you met, and it's both 
landowners, large landowners, um, you know, for whom you don't have much truck some of the time, quite rightly, but also government. So tell us a little bit more about where does that resistance lie in government? Is that coming from things like Natural England? Is it coming from the, the quangos or the governing bodies? Is it coming from DEFRA or the, the minister? Where does the reluctance come from? Okay, so to answer in two parts, large landowners, and let's be clear about this, are the most remarkable bunch of people. Sure, there are traditionalists there who who think the whole landscape should be a hunting, shooting, fishing, or a farming landscape, and who are resolutely set in their ways. Their vision of the future is to go back to a past, and by the time you've intellectually got yourself into that position, then it's very hard to see. I mean, where do you go when, when you only want to go back? But then there are another larger, growing group of people who own land, and there are some tremendous people there. They are capable of doing things at great scale. They are capable of doing things quickly with huge imagination. You don't deal with committees when you're dealing with them. You deal with single individuals who can be and increasingly becoming the most incredible visionaries. And in them, there is tremendous hope because they can move quickly. So they're not all the same. When it comes to to government, you know, I have met several senior politicians in recent years, and I have to say I would not, you know, I couldn't begin to quantify um, their motives, but I can tell you that some of them really get it. They understand how difficult it is. They understand things have to change. They understand things have to change quickly, and they are supportive. But between them and, 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 and the large landowners, between them and the people who own smaller amounts of land, between them and us, there is this great big inert mass that just doesn't do things fast. It's called the civil service. It's there to to, to maintain a status quo. And part of that status quo is ensuring really that boats don't rock, that you don't ask tricky questions, that when people come back to you with an application for anything, it goes into a computer and you know, that bloody computer says yes. And if the computer doesn't say this, then you end up with a whole lot of children looking at a form that they don't understand with, 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 with with a management system that also doesn't understand and, 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 and they just end up doing nothing. And, and I've, I've spent long enough in this game and sat in many enough meetings where you, know, you could begin to, you know, begin and you're rational by the time you finish, by the time you've considered the arguments and heard it all is, you know, the best thing to do is actually do nothing. Whereas in, the, in fact, the best thing to do is just get to the end of the bloody diving board and jump and hope like hell that when you do, there's water somewhere down beneath. And that's where we need to be. We need more of a spirit of adventure. We need more young people. We need more examination of the decisions that are made in closed meetings, you know, where people who don't understand decisions well make decisions on behalf of all of us, on behalf of species that they don't understand well, on behalf of the planet. That's not the way it should be. And I have no truck and no time for that. Did you want to comment, Jen? You looked, you nodding well, away. Well, I just, there. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just agreeing with everything Derek's saying. And I, I think, um, you know, as I as at the top, the, the trouble is that we don't, you know, we have very set ideas of what we want from nature and nature doesn't work like that and we don't regard ourselves as part of nature and we don't regard you know we don't trust you know the sort of creatures that actually know far more what to do with the resources and how best to manage them you know we regard ourselves even though we understand so little about the actual relationships between plants and trees and water and flowers and nectar and insects and you know we, we just come in and sort of ride a coach and horses through everything thinking we know best and I think it, it's very difficult to get people to step back and say look you know you can broadly steer something in a direction and you need to sort of be a bit aware that there's a margin of 
error in that, but you know, you can trust that actually if you if you just let nature take its course literally, then then sort of good will come out of it. But it, you just need to be a little bit more um, you know, adventurous in, in what you regard the outcome to be, rather than be so set on, you know, a particular particular thing to do, um, and you know, and then and then get sort of lost in the weeds because, you know, things haven't gone quite gone exactly how you know. I get this time and time again with B projects. People say, "Well, what are you going to do this year?" I thought I haven't got the faintest clue. You know, <laughs> I, how on earth can I predict what a what an essentially wild animal is going to is going to do in the upcoming upcoming year? It depends on the weather. It depends. Mm on mm-hmm. everything and you know it's very difficult and I to bang in a sort of bit of a quote but I said you've got to understand that it's it's you know they might die they might swarm they might proliferate they might do really really well they're entirely reliant on the environment to dictate how they operate and you know people don't like that you know, they want to give the uncertainty, isn't it? And we just seem frightened of uncertainty, and we seem frightened of. But it's new. not, you know, it's not like they're going to sort of make a zebra or something. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know why. They're just you know, bees. Want, yeah, exactly. And you sort of think, yes, okay, they might, they might not do this. And you know, people say, well, if we plant these things, will the bees go on them? And you think, well, no, they'll probably, you know, go off to that weedy sycamore you don't like very much. But it's sort of, it's, it doesn't matter. Why is it so important? The fact that we need to trust them and say look there you go there's you just get on with it you know we've we've given you the resources and let them steer what mm. what we do because yeah. they understand the resources so much better than we do but mm. this is disconnect isn't there between us this is disconnect between us as people and the environment we're yes. living in so sorry Derek you were going to pop in there no, I was just going to say I, I think I think a lot of these things all ultimately end become excuses and, yeah. and it's just another reason, you know, the, you know, why you stop, you slow, you you create uncertainties and you prey on them. You know, so at the moment, there's a big trend in, in institutionalised nature conservation thinking, which is called, you know, it's called looking for a thing called an evidence gap. Now, an evidence gap, I'm not even sure what the hell an evidence gap is. It means it's something, it's like, come back to your kind of Rumsfeld, known knowns and known not unknowns and all that sort of bollocks. And at the end of the, the day, you know, what it means is, you know, it's a bit of knowledge we haven't got, but the only way you ever get knowledge is not by sitting down to eat, you know to eat a lot of biscuits and have cups of teas with all your wee mates who think the same. It's by going and getting forty of whatever you're worried about, putting them in a box and letting them go, and seeing what the bloody hell happens next. And that's it. You know, it's as simple as that. And and the other thing that also has disturbed me over the years is the incredible cultural arrogance that there is in this pompous little country. It's the idea that, you know, we're just born and we're British and we think we're as clever as hell, you know, by the time we come out of our mother's womb and land face down on the floor of the, um, the maternity ward, is, is that, you know, we have the answers to something that we don't understand. And then you look at the Europeans, the North Americans, the other peoples of the world, and and for some strange reason, we always think because we're British, we understand things automatically better than other people who actually live with them and do them. And 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 this idea that we could do nothing that's not been tried in Britain. Well, how does that come about? I mean, how how does that work when you get into you know an opal and put your key in the ignition and put your foot in the accelerator and drive it? There's there's a lot of real stupidity here. And and it's that that's that that makes this so vexing because the solutions to some of the problems we have are there. There are things we know we should do and, and reintroducing the beaver fast or at scale is one of them, but we've never done that before. We're good at talking a big story, but not actually you know, coming up with any action that's manifestly swift or intelligent. Um, so so doing Derek, that, if we did that, if we introduced the beaver swiftly and at scale, what would be the, the outcome? Why would that the, be the a benefit? The outcome is... 
that this animal would start to restore the riparian landscapes, which are the richest living environment on the planet for nature quickly. It would mean we would lose some land. It would mean we'd have to be careful about the land we lost and the land that we didn't lose. But a lot of the land that we would lose, I can tell you, is wetland anyway, which is producing next to no food and, and never will. It was, it was land that was reclaimed by for farming you know, in the 1960s and 1970s. And it's never had a function other than to give liver fluke to sheep. So at the end of it all, you know, it's something we could do very easily with very little pain. And the only reason we're not doing it is because we've got a lot of wee people who are frightened of their own shadow. And at the end of the day, if they're in those positions, um, you know, too timid to make a decision about what we do or what we don't do, they shouldn't be doing that job. They should be, I don't know, stacking shelves with with pasta somewhere in a, a down market Eastern European supermarket. <laughs> We're going to get taken off the air in a minute. Derek, tell me what the beavers would do. So they'll 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 create natural floods. What how for those of us who've not yet encountered a beaver and may never have seen a beaver habitat, what is it that having a beaver in that space will do? Obviously, it'll restore land, but what will it actually do? It, you know, because because people get worried and they say build dams, they'll flood rivers. It'll all be a disaster. What will the beaver do if we put them back? They won't flood rivers. They can't flood rivers. They, can't, they are not engineers of that sort. What they do is they go, once they're, they're, good, they're a very highly territorial rodent that lives in family groups. They're a right. big rodent. They can weigh as much as a roe deer. They, wow. If you introduce them tomorrow onto river systems, they'd go out onto the rivers. And for a long time, they'd live on the main rivers, feeding on the on the, on the, the vegetation that exists along the banks, if indeed it does. Because mm. remember, the sheep and the cattle and the grazing and the ploughing and the farming and the canalisation and the concrete have taken much of it. But where they are able to survive, they'd live an easy life in those big rivers. But as they're territorial and will not tolerate other individuals from other families in their territories, eventually the two-year-olds are forced out of the main river systems, forced into the side streams, and they're in environments where you've got water bodies that are maybe less than a metre in depth and less than a metre in width. The beavers will build impoundments, and when they build impoundments, they will start to spread that water from an entity which exists in a narrow line that we've created into one that it should be. It should be there in huge bowls, big lakes, lagoons, ponds, pools, water running over land, and the beavers will recreate that. It's only not there because we've destroyed and drained because we wanted everything, and the beavers will return the land to the wet. Well, there we are, as the, in a nutshell. And I have to ask you, because you're going to have to go off into the two things I want to ask you before I come back to Jen is, why have you got beaver traps in your car? What, what, does, what are they going to do when they get to, to their home in Surrey? And second, I need to ask you about sexing the beaver, because that was just a great bit in your book. But tell me about the beaver traps first. Okay, so about the beaver traps. The beaver traps are going to the National Trust. As part of the licensing condition, you get to keep two beavers in a pen, which is not a frighteningly dangerous prospect. You <laughs> Even if they have, bite you. <laughs> oh, they, they very seldom bite people. And yeah. uh, when you look at the tens of millions we killed, I think in recent years, there was some wee man that went to the pub in Bella, Russia, and came back and got pissed with his wee mates and vodka. And as he was leaving the pub, he decided he saw a beaver walking along the side of the road and decided, <laughs> to pick it up and kiss it and somebody said well did it remind him of his wife was he just confused and of course before you could actually answer that question the beaver had sunk its teeth into him because it didn't like him kissing it and, and, and it nicked his femoral artery and he bled to death but you know it's a very unusual thing to have happen and I think you know nobody really asked the beaver for its point of view but in the end it just objected to what it was being subjected to so um, 
<laughs> so no, they're not an issue, but you have to have great big traps because that says so in the license. And if you don't get your license, you don't get your beavers, which is the way it is. Okay. Um, with regard to the sex and beavers, well, you know, sexy beavers. It's, it's, it's not an easy, easy job, is it? Well, it is an easy job if you if if you you've done well. No, it's not all an easy. <laughs> I, job. I'm going to leave that as a taster. That will, if nothing else, that'll get people to buy your book because that was just fantastic. That whole passage about the beaver sexing. So <laughs> I I know you've got to go because I know you've got to get 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 across the country. And uh, I just want to ask you, what can we do as general listeners to the podcast to help support the beaver reintroduction program? What would you like from us and from Planet Well, there are a number of organisations that are now starting to, to try to help. The National Trust, are, you know, before pre-COVID, really were, were, were beginning to come round to the idea that they, owning the land they owned, really had to become a force for good. And, and I have to say that it was heartening to see. I mean, you've got the normal organisations like the Wildlife Trust and the RSBB, all of whom are developing their own beaver projects. But you know what I would say to you is that the organisations that commonly make the biggest difference are the little ones. You know, people like Roy Dennis, the most remarkable man who encouraged me to become well in- involved with the beavers right at the beginning and who's reintroducing white-tailed eagles on, on, on the Isle of Wight right now. So I would say that if you guys want to become involved and you want to help support something that can really do some good, then, then you look at Roy's tiny foundation, which works on a shoestring, and by God, you help him. He'll do good things. There won't be big carpets and chief executives there. they just just be bloody action. So I, I, I would think about, you know, have, having a wee look at what he does and saying you'll help. Thank you, Derek. That's really good. And we'll certainly put all those contact details on the Planet Pod website. Jen, your approach to beekeeping is is very much kind of in tune with Derek's approach to making the land back in a, a way that is we're not polluting it or taking things from it. But it's more to do with also how you actually keep the bees themselves, don't you? Because because I was really struck when I came on your course and we talked about sustainable beekeeping that that actually it isn't about mass honey production. And I think that's what everybody thinks. I think they'll get a hive, they'll get loads of jars of honey, they'll stick their label on it and they'll give it away. But actually it's much more about working in tune with the hive itself, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think it's really important to remember that bees can only make honey if there's available forage to do so. And I think this is why there's a lot of um, difficulty regarding sort of honeybees being part of conservation projects, because obviously, if you want to, you can prop up your bees with sugar syrup. And if you harvest honey, then you have to feed them and you can manipulate them and treat them and this sort of thing. Now, you don't have to do that. And you don't have to take any honey at all. You know, and in fact, um, it's much better for the bees if you leave it all for them. You know, they gather it and, um, you know, they, they gather it because they need to live through the winter on it. You know, they, they don't make it for us. And um, I think especially if you're uh, focusing much more on, a, on you know, observational beekeeping and trying to work in tune with the bees and, as I said, using them as a, a sort of a guide, if you like, for, for wanting to plant more um, forage plants, um, you know, sort of engage in some, you know, improving wildlife habitat, you know, as a, um, as I always say, bees work as part of a, you know, bees as in honeybees work as part of a kind of orchestra and they work more effectively if there are other bee species around. Um, they're kind of quite generalist when it comes to foraging. So what you plant for honeybees, it benefits all bees and what benefits bees benefits pollinators, what benefits pollinators benefits insects, blah, blah, blah. And it goes all up through the food chain, which is why I do think they have a value 
um, as as something to to sort of help you help you think about how to manage your land more effectively for, for pollinators. So I, I think that's where they, um, you know, that's where they could be really helpful. And yes, as, as you say, as soon as they start getting um, managed like kind of livestock for honey production, that's when the pressures start. And just the same as any other sort of intensive livestock, you know, that's when, you know, the, the system gets out of balance. I mean, bees have a have an exquisite relationship with with the natural world, and with the forage and with the the resources available to them, and they tailor what they need and what they take, you know, to, to, with a sort of beautiful symmetry. And I think, obviously, as soon as you start sort of you know jumping in and opening up the hive and taking honey and feeding them and propping them up and jeeing them up in the spring so that they get ready, obviously you you get that balance out of whack, and that's when they can. Be, be much more detrimental in the environment. Um, obviously, you know, if you just plant for all pollinators, then you're, you know, sometimes the honeybees will get them, sometimes the bubblebees, sometimes the hoverflies. It's and it's it's about just, you know, I always say put out sort of a buffet for them really, and then they can decide what they want and when. But it's just about more. And if people want to help bees, they should really be thinking about planting more rather than getting bees. Um, mm. And um, and that's that's really the sort of the message. And you know, not propping them up, you know, trying to keep them as as naturally as possible, which which then means they they aren't detrimental to the environment. Yeah, and I think that that's you know a perfect point to end on because of the symmetry and the synergy between the two of you. I mean, a tiny bee and a not so tiny beaver, but 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 really, what we're talking about is having a world that is in balance and where we are not interfering and not trying to dominate, as you said, Derek, and letting nature take its course. And thank goodness we've got you to. To, to help restore that balance a little bit by getting these the beavers back and 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 Jen you know giving us fantastic insight into the fact that actually we could just put our hive in and just watch it and have it for pleasure and not actually raid it for honey <laughs> so it's you know really fascinating thank you both so much for your time um it's been fantastic to have you on the pod um bringing back the beaver Derek's brilliant book do buy it and wayward bee uh which is Jen's wonderful company where you can learn sustainable beekeeping and she's fantastic online resources as well so Jen and Derek thank you both so much for for being with us thank you very much thank you very much indeed it's great to have you. And thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Do follow us on Instagram or on Twitter or visit us on the website, theplanetpod.com, where you can download previous episodes. Um, if you have us on an app, then please rate and review the programme because it really helps us very much. So thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.